This is something big. This is something bigger. That is big. Not as big as that. Sure, that's big. That's bigger. Big and bigger. Doug's not here today, but he would be very proud of me because we're going to do a pop quiz. So what did you just see? What was big? Give me something. What was big that you saw up there? Say what? Love? Good. Helping someone. Clean. Yeah. Volkswagen commercial. <laughs> Thank you, Volkswagen, for offering this uh, picture for us. It's an analogy. Life. Caring. Environmental concerns. Yeah, so the things we typically look at in life as big, there are things that are bigger if we readjust our thinking. And so over the past several weeks, Jesus has been doing something similar. Actually, we've been doing something similar. Jesus did it quite a while ago. But we've been studying about Jesus. And Jesus is helping us explore different comparisons. He's actually made six recently that we've recently studied, I should say. So I'm going to say the word that is the big. And you tell me what Jesus said is the bigger. Murder. What's the bigger one? Murder. So, well, no, but he's anger. Yeah, he's saying it's not just murder. The more broad thing, the bigger thing is anger, right? We're not just need to murder. We shouldn't be angry with our brothers. Settling in court. What's the bigger thing? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Jesus said we should settle out of court. Work with each other. Don't, 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 don't rely on having to show up at court. How about adultery? What's the bigger thing? Don't even think about it. <laughs> Being perfect on earth. Remember, if your eye, your hand your, is evil, get rid of it, right? So being perfect on earth was seen as the big thing, but what's the bigger thing? It really doesn't matter what you do on earth. The bigger thing is make sure you're perfect in heaven. Divorce is okay. Really? The bigger thing is divorce should be seen as a very last option. Last one that we covered was using oaths. The bigger thing is what? Your word should be your word. For Jesus' audience, these things weren't just fine-tuning. They weren't just little tweaks. They were transformational. And he isn't finished. He continues to challenge their paradigms. But before we begin today's passage, let's get just a little bit of context. 
At work recently, we've been working with what we're calling a four-box model. So I'm going to introduce this to you today, and, and it may help us as we study, continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount, see if there's an application there. So on the left-hand side, you can see that we're talking about internal things, things that are unseen. They're inside of us. They're like beliefs, paradigms, values, stories, history, culture. They're the things that are going on in our minds that ultimately cause us to do the things that we do and make the choices that we make, which is what we see on the right side. The right side is the external. The external are the things, of course, that we see. The things that are going on, the actions that we take, the things that we do. And then the top applies to individuals and the bottom applies to groups. So let's take a look real quick. By the way, this is kind of interesting to do this yourself or with your family to think about these four boxes and how you relate to the world. It can be kind of eye-opening. For those of us in faith, Oswald Chambers describes the left side and the right side of these boxes like this. We live in two universes. I call them the left and the right. The universe of common sense in which we come into contact with things by our senses. The right side of the box, right? The things that you see and hear and touch and smell, taste, the right side. And the universe of revelation, which is the left side, with which we come into contact by faith. If you're an outsider looking in on the Jews at the time of birth of Christ, how might this these boxes look. I gave this some thought, and this is what I came up with. It doesn't mean that it's right. It certainly is not intended to be a total summary. There are only partial answers to the question, and many other words could be used to fill these boxes. But if you look at that bottom right-hand box, what did people see when they looked at Israel, when they looked at the Jews in Christ's time? And here's kind of the way I described it. And again, there are many different ways to describe it, many different terms you could use. But here's what I said. A light flickering almost out. A city in isolation, except of course they're occupied. Salt without flavor. Exclusive. You could have used desolate, lifeless. How about that lower left-hand corner? What's going on in their systems, in their philosophy, in their culture of the time? What's causing this? Well, the Jews believed that they were a chosen people and that salvation was only for them. They believed that following the Mosaic laws could save them. And unfortunately, they were disconnected from God. If you look at the top right, if you think about Jews as individual people, what would you see if you followed a Jew around, an Israelite around in their daily routine? You'd see them working really hard trying to keep the rules. You'd see them submitting to Rome, but only when absolutely necessary. You would see that occasionally they're exploited by the Romans. They're forced to pay taxes, occasionally forced to carry burdens. Occasionally they don't do what they're supposed to do. They rebel. Riots break out. So what's going on in their minds? What's going on in the individual's mind? Well... The overriding theme of what's going on in the Israelites' mind and the Jews' mind is that the Messiah is coming. This is temporary. Help is coming. This is all going to end soon. They keep the rules, 
One big reason is they fear being cut off. Because if you didn't keep the rules, that's what happened to you. You'd be cut off. They had this belief that Rome would be defeated and ultimately the Jews would rule. What a mess. What a mess the Jewish nation was when Jesus came. So what was Israel designed to look like? Well, again, in my humble opinion, that lower right box might look like this. They're the light of the world. They're a city on a hill. They're the salt of the earth. They're evangelistic. And the things that they would believe was, yes, they are chosen by God, but they're not chosen by God to be his only. They're chosen by God to be his representatives. And they would recognize that God loves everybody and that we're saved by God's grace and that they would be connected and fully dependent upon God. And as we go to that top right box of what an Israelite ideally, what was the ideal plan? Let's pause and look at our passage and take a look. And our passage may help us fill in those blanks. Matthew 5, 38 to 42 is our passage this morning. And it says this, you have heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. The eye for an eye principle. Let's look at these one at a time. The eye for an eye principle has been around for as long as, almost as long as life itself. It has history that's grounded in the Old Testament. Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. All say this principle. Eye for an eye. It's well documented. If you commit an offense, you have to make it right in a proportionate amount. Newton's third law, right? For every action, there is what? An equal and opposite reaction. It's been with us for decades, for millennium. It's practiced everywhere in the world. Everywhere from Kay's classroom where the kid comes crying to teacher, 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 Johnny hit me. Well, why did he hit you? Well, maybe I hit him. <laughs> it's a reaction, right? Who hit who first? Well, why did you hit him? Well, he hit me first. Equal and opposite reaction. I was in Tennessee a month ago, happened to come home commercially on a Friday morning, sat next to a guy that named Andre Lanier. He's currently working on his doctorate at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, but living in Georgia. Kind of interesting. So he comes to Northwest Arkansas several weekends per year. When he graduated from high school, he wanted to see the world. And so he joined the military. His first assignment, submarine. Didn't see the world too well that way. But he spent 25 years in the military. So he spent a lot of years on a submarine, a lot of years on an aircraft carrier. And his most recent assignment before he retired from the military was as a drone operator. Very interesting. Today, he is employed by a contractor for the U.S. government training drone operators. 
And it just so happened that the week before, week and a half before, I sat next to him. I ran, some of you may have heard, downed, took out one of our drones. $130 million. They took out one of our drones. Trump's initial reaction, strike back, strike hard. Why? Newton's third law, right? So ultimately he changed his mind because I think what he had planned to do wasn't going to be proportional. I think it was going to be extreme. But he decided not to do that. And so I was asking Andre, I said, so, okay, tell me, what's really going to happen here? Are we just going to let it slide? He goes, oh, no. That's still $130 million. He says, there will be a response. It will be proportional. And you'll never hear about it. I thought, okay. That was pretty interesting. So this is a familiar thing for all of us, right? And into this atmosphere, into this culture, Jesus says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. It's interesting because the Greek word for resist here is engage in revengeful or violent action. So Matthew 5, 39, the first part would be better translated. Do not retaliate revengefully by evil means. So how does this play out if we're not supposed to retaliate? Well, Jesus provides three specific examples of this, and then he provides a, a fourth illustration to help us understand what this means in his day. Example number one, turn the other cheek. We've heard this before. What you may not realize is that being slapped on the cheek in Jesus' day was considered one of the worst possible insults. It was like spitting in your face. It was so bad that Epictetus, a Roman slave, said that a slave would rather be thrashed to death than flicked on the cheek. And into this culture... Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Example number two, give, give your coat also. So the law forbade suing and getting somebody's coat. You could take the shirt off their back, but you couldn't take their coat. In fact, if you held somebody else's coat for collateral in Jesus' day, you had to return it to them every evening so that when they slept, they could stay warm. It was not lawful for you to take their coat. So what does Jesus say? If somebody sues you for your shirt, take your coat off and give it to them too. Stand before the court with nothing on, at least from your waist up. Make a statement. Example number three, go the second mile. The Jews were under Roman occupation. It was lawful for any soldier to demand a Jew to carry their burden for up to one mile. So what does Jesus say? Take it too. Take it too. Try to get into the mind of a Jew that's hearing Jesus say these things back then. It's hard to imagine. But yet... Imagine the conversations that might happen as you walk together for two miles. Now, maybe some could do it in absolute silence, but probably there were on occasion conversations that took place. Maybe conversations like, what is it like to be a Roman living in Jerusalem? What is it like to be a Jew living under Roman occupation? 
Maybe the conversation even came up that says, tell me about Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Eventually, that, that might lead to a centurion asking Jesus to heal his daughter or a soldier declaring after the crucifixion that this must have been the Son of God. The first three examples Jesus gives are interesting because they follow an action in which they had absolutely no choice. Being struck on the cheek, having your shirt taken, or being forced to go a mile, in each of those circumstances, the person had no choice as to what was happening to them. But Jesus says, you can still choose to display my character even in these circumstances. You still have a choice. And you can make that choice clear. You do not have to become a total slave. You still can choose to display my character. Fourth example is different. The catalyst isn't responding to something bad that is happening to them, but rather a simple response to human need. Give to those who ask. Spent the week in Louisville. Went to the International Association for Food Protection, which is very interesting. It, uh, there were 4,000 people there from all over the world with one purpose, how to make the food supply of the world safer. Nine of us went from the Gentry plant, and when I called to make sure that we had cars, our travel group says, you can get a car, but normally we don't provide cars when you're so close to the convention center. I said, well, how close are we? They said, oh, you're about a quarter of a mile. So we got no cars, and so every morning we left and walked the quarter of a mile, which is just beautiful weather. It was, it was, I guess it was similar to the way it was here. It was like... 70 degrees in the morning, you know, and maybe 80-ish in the evening when we walk back. It was just really, really pleasant. But every morning when we walked to the convention center, we passed homeless people on the sidewalk. Passed them going, passed them coming home. Now, if you're like me, I pretty well don't carry any cash anymore. I mean, I just don't. I, hardly, I rarely use cash. So when I'm faced with a person, like a homeless person, it's hard to know. I, I don't know what to do with that, you know? They need money, they need cash, and it's not just one of them. There's several. And you pass them going, you're going to pass them coming, and you're going to be there for days. So what do you do with that, you know? So I did what any normal person would do. I walked right on by. One evening, we were coming back from supper, walking, of course. Our group was walking, and we had with us a young intern named Mallory. Mallory's probably 22. She's just working with us over the summer, but we took her to the, to the uh, conference so that she could get a better understanding of, of all things related to, to our work. And she just couldn't stand it anymore. And so as we got to the parking lot, she just came up to me. She says, I just can't stand it. I can't stand walking by people as if they just don't exist. I had to think about that one. So I was telling Ken, Ken didn't hear that comment, Ken Hill, 
So Ken was with us. So the next morning on the way back into the convention center, I was telling him about Mallory's comment. He says, well, last night after we got back, I went back out for a walk again and got accosted by, oh, one, one of the guys was just mean. He just would yell, you know, like if you didn't, if you didn't give him money, he'd call you names. And anyway, it's pretty sad. So Ken just, Ken, one, one guy came up to Ken and said, hey, I'm really hungry. And he says, well, I'm, I'm not going to give you any money. He says, but I will take you to eat if you want to eat something. So Ken actually took him out to eat. And when they were done, bought him a lot, some extra stuff. So he went, walked away with a bunch of chicken wings in his, in his bag. And he told Ken that that was the most food he'd had all week. And this was probably by now, Wednesday or Thursday. Ken says, well, maybe the most food he had. He says, it was my biggest meal expense for the week. <laughs> so Friday morning, got home. Actually, Thursday, I got home. Friday morning, I was out on the back deck. And I was actually preparing for this talk. And I ran across this page. And I had to make a copy of it. And I sent, sent Mallory this text. I sent your comment in Louisville about how awful it feels to walk right past people as if they didn't exist has churned in my heart since you said it. The point was brought home by my reading this morning. And let me tell you, let me just read the little part that I read that was the part that really got me. These statements of Jesus revolutionize all our conceptions of charity. Much of our modern philanthropy is based on the motive of giving to the poor because they deserve it or because we are distressed at seeing them poor. Jesus never taught charity from these motives. He said, give to him who asks, not because he deserves it, but because I tell you to. The great motive in all giving is Jesus Christ's command. We can always find a hundred and one reasons for not obeying our Lord's commands, because we will trust our reasoning rather than his reason. And our reason does not take God into calculation. How does civilization argue? Do these people deserve what I'm giving them? As soon as you talk like that, the Spirit of God says, who are you? Do you deserve more than other people, the blessings that you have? As I was sitting on my nice deck, looking over my nice property, 10 feet from my nice hot tub, 10 feet away from my door of my nice house, it's very difficult to answer that question. God convicted my heart at that point. And so Jesus gives us words to place in that upper right-hand box. What is the ideal for Israel? What is the ideal for us today? Turn the other cheek. Give your coat also. Go the second mile. Give to those in need. And where should these actions spring from? What things should be going on in our mind? We should recognize that God is love. And in response to his love, we should have a genuine love for God and a genuine love for people. How do we get this love for God and people? Well, the Jews had become disconnected. They were busy making and pasting on fruit. It looked fake. It felt fake. It smelled fake. It tasted fake. It was fake. We need to connect and stay connected. 
And if we stay connected, the fruit will appear. At that moment in Louisville, Mallory was connected. Ken was connected. I was not. Oswald Chambers again. Jesus lived in the revelation world that we do not see. And until we get into his world, we do not understand his teaching at all. In him, we find that the universe of revelation and the universe of common sense were made one. And if they are to be one in us, it can only be by receiving the Holy Spirit. This is not the only place in the Bible where this teaching is brought home. Romans 12 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. The same thoughts are repeated in Luke 6, 1 Thessalonians 5, and 1 Peter 2. We also find this lesson in a father who understands these principles well and taught them to his son through enemy pie. It should have been the perfect summer. My dad helped me build a treehouse in our backyard. My sister was at camp for three whole weeks, and I was on the best baseball team in town. It should have been a perfect summer, but it wasn't. It was all good until Jeremy Ross moved into the neighborhood right next door to my best friend Stanley. I did not like Jeremy Ross. He laughed at me when he shook me out in a baseball game. He had a party on his trampoline and I wasn't even invited, but my best friend Stanley was. Jeremy Ross was the one and only person on my enemy list. I never even had an enemy list until he moved into the neighborhood. But as soon as he came along, I needed one. I hung it up in my treehouse where Jeremy Ross was not allowed to go. Dad understood stuff like enemies. He told me that when he was my age, he had enemies too. But he knew of a way to get rid of them. I asked him to tell me how. Tell you how? I'll show you how, he said. He pulled a really old recipe book off the kitchen shelf. Inside, there was a worn-out scrap of paper with faded writing. Dad held it up and squinted at it. Enemy, enemy pie, he said, satisfied. You may be wondering what exactly is an enemy pie. I was wondering, too. But Dad said the recipe was so secret, he couldn't even tell me. I decided it must be magic. I begged him to tell me something, anything. I will tell you this, he said, enemy pie is the fastest known way to get rid of enemies. Now, of course, this got my mind working. What kinds of things, disgusting things, would I put into a pie for an enemy? I brought dad some weeds from the garden, but he just shook his head. I brought him earthworms and rocks, but he didn't need those. I gave him the gum I'd been chewing all morning. He gave it right back to me. I went out to play alone. I shot baskets until the ball got stuck on the roof. I threw a boomerang and it never came back to me. And all the while, I listened to the sounds of my dad chopping and stirring and blending the ingredients of enemy pie. This could be a great summer after all. 
Enemy pie was going to be awful. I tried to imagine how horrible it must smell, or worse yet, what it would look like. But when I was in the backyard looking for ladybugs, I smelled something really, really, really good. And as far as I could tell, it was coming from our kitchen. I was a bit confused. I went in to ask Dad what was wrong. Enemy pie shouldn't smell this good, but Dad was smart. If enemy pie smelled bad, your enemy would never eat it, he said. I could tell he'd made enemy pie before. The buzzer rang, and Dad put on the oven mitts and pulled the pie out of the oven. It looked like a plain old pie. It looked good enough to eat. I was catching on. But still, I wasn't really sure how this enemy pie worked. What exactly did it do to enemies? Maybe it made their hair fall out or their breath stinky. Maybe it made bullies cry. I asked Dad, but he was no help. He wouldn't tell me a thing. But while the pie cooled, he filled me in on my job. He talked quietly. There is one part of enemy pie that I can't do. In order for it to work, you need to spend the day with your enemy. Even worse, you have to be nice to him. It's not easy, but that's the only way that enemy pie can work. Are you sure you want to go through with this? Of course I was. It sounded horrible, it was scary, but it was worth a try. All I had to do was spend one day with Jeremy Ross, then he'd be out of my hair for the rest of my life. I rode my bike to his house and knocked on the door. When Jeremy opened the door, he seemed surprised. He stood on the other side of the screen door and looked at me, waiting for me to say something. I was nervous. Can you play, I asked. He looked confused. I'll go ask my mom, he said. He came back with his shoes in his hand. His mom walked around the corner to say hello. You boys stay out of trouble, she said, smiling. We rode bikes for a while and played on the trampoline. Then we made some water balloons and threw them at the neighbor girls, but we missed. Jeremy's mom made us lunch. After lunch, we went over to my house. It was strange, but I was kind of having fun with my enemy. He almost seemed nice. But of course, I couldn't tell Dad that since he had worked so hard to make this enemy pie. Jeremy Ross liked my basketball hoop. He said he wished he had a basketball hoop, but they didn't have room for one. I let him win a game just to be nice. Jeremy Ross knew how to throw a boomerang. He threw it, and it came right back to him. I threw it, and it went over my house and into the backyard. When we climbed over the fence to find it, the first thing Jeremy noticed was my treehouse. My treehouse was my treehouse. I was the boss. If my sister wanted in, I didn't have to let her. If my dad wanted in, I didn't have to let him. And if Jeremy wanted in, can we go in it, he asked. I knew he was going to ask me that, but he was the top person, the only person on my enemy list. And enemies aren't allowed in my treehouse. But he did teach me to throw the boomerang, and he did have me over for lunch, and he did let me play on his trampoline. He wasn't being a very good enemy. Okay, I said, but hold on. I climbed up ahead of him and tore the enemy list off the wall. I had a checkerboard and some cards in the treehouse, and we played games until my dad called us down for dinner. We pretended we didn't hear him, and when he came out to get us, we tried to hide from him, but somehow he found us. Dad made us macaroni and cheese for dinner, my favorite. It was Jeremy's favorite, too. Maybe Jeremy Ross wasn't so bad after all. I was beginning to think that maybe we should just forget about enemy pie. But sure enough, after dinner, Dad brought out the pie. 
I watched as he cut the pie into eight thick slices. Dad, I said, it sure is nice having a new friend in the neighborhood. I was trying to get his attention and trying to tell him that Jeremy Ross was no longer my enemy, but Dad only smiled and nodded. I think he thought I was just pretending. Dad dished up three plates side by side with big pieces of pie and giant scoops of ice cream. He passed one to me and one to Jeremy. Wow, Jeremy said, looking at the pie. My dad never makes pies like this. It was at this point that I panicked. I didn't want Jeremy to eat enemy pie. He was my friend. I couldn't let him eat it. Jeremy, don't eat it. It's a bad pie. I think it's poisonous or something. Jeremy's fork stopped right before me reaching his mouth. He crumpled his eyebrows and looked at me funny. I felt relieved. I had saved his life. I was a hero. If it's so bad, Jeremy asked, then why was your dad already eating half of it? I turned to look at my dad. Sure enough, he was eating enemy pie. Good stuff, he mumbled through a mouthful. And that was all he said. I sat there watching him eat enemy pie for a few seconds. Dad was laughing. Jeremy was happily eating. And neither of them was losing any hair. It seemed safe enough, so I took a tiny taste. Enemy pie was delicious. After dessert, Jeremy rode his bike home, but not before inviting me over to play on his trampoline in the morning. He said he'd teach me how to flip. As for enemy pie, I still don't know how to make it. I still wonder if enemies really do hate it, or if their hair falls out, or if their breath turns bad. But I don't know if I'll ever get an answer, because I just lost my enemy. So, next week, Glenn picks it up with Love Your Enemies. So we continue the theme. So Glenn, looking forward to it. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your many blessings to us, and we're thankful for the scriptures that you have recorded for us, for our well-being. Lord, we just ask that we may choose every day to spend time with you so that the thoughts that we put in our head, the principles that we hold true, the values that we hold, that they may come from you so that our actions may be the simple outworking of your will in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.